Try that again. What a beautiful start to the service today. I have been so anxious to get to this point today. (laughs) Listening to that song, I feel as though I've been run over by a freight train this week, but I'm glad to know I am bound on the glory train. Listen, let me say this. I wanted to get to the message just as quickly as possible in the service together. Uh, Because it has been a rather uh, difficult week uh, this past week. And so uh, to begin with, I would like to just uh, briefly address a rumor that is circulating within our community. And uh, just so you'll hear it directly from me. So this morning, I'm the bearer of either good news or bad news. It depends on your personal feelings. Uh, But contrary to what you might have heard, I am not leaving this church. Um, I became aware of this thing that's been circulating on Tuesday morning. I don't understand it. I will say this. If you are here this morning and you are part of starting such a conversation, or you're also engaged in sharing that conversation, I just want you to know, first of all, I love you. Number two, I forgive you. And then number three, I really wish you would just come and talk to me. Um, I, I can't help but to try to make a connection on how this all came about this week. And uh, truthfully, I think it will most likely was in connection to what transpired here last week in my absence. Um, I'll take full responsibility to what occurred in our worship service last week. I want to speak to you this morning to give clarity to our theological position as it relates to the Old Testament law. I listened to last week's message a half dozen times, and I am concerned as to some of the statements that were made, some of the things that weren't really clear, and some things that were clearly said. So this morning I want to speak to the law. Uh, And I think it's a beautiful time to address this because in a couple of weeks from now we're going to see in Romans chapter 3 that righteousness is by faith. And so, with that being said, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and go ahead and let's go on a journey together. It's going to begin in Deuteronomy chapter 4. We are going to cover a lot of text. And so, I did my best to have all of these references in the bulletins this morning. So, if you don't have one of those, you might want to grab one of those. Uh, Because I have a lot of ground to cover, I will not wait pause too long from one verse to another or one reference to another. Therefore, I have provided all of these on the screens today so you can see them. Uh, So whatever works best for you this morning as far as finding it in your Bibles, writing notes, whatever, it'll be available. You can come back to this to review it, and I pray that you will. We're going to begin in Deuteronomy chapter 4. We need to also kind of consider when we speak about the law, what exactly are we referencing? The law can mean many things. There are judicial law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, 
moral law, you have like the Ten Commandments. So, so what is it that we mean when we talk about the law? And so we begin in Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, specifically in verse number 10. There it says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may teach them, uh, uh, that I may let them, sorry, hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. You came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, Darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire, and you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Now, Pause real quick. First of all, know that the first thing that, that God gave to Moses and, and, and the people of Israel were, were the Ten Commandments. And God gave these Ten Commandments to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. This was about two months after Moses led them out of Egypt. It's recorded in Exodus chapter 20. The question I want us to consider is, was this the first time that these instructions were were given to humanity? Were, Were these commandments or the spirit of these commandments, were they known to people prior to Moses and Mount Sinai? I think the answer to this question is found in a fascinating statement that God made about Abraham. This statement is recorded in Genesis chapter 26, verse number 5. There he says, Because Abraham obeyed my voice, he kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is significant because Abraham was born hundreds of years before Moses received the law and the Ten Commandments. So in order for Abraham... Uh, to uh, have been obedient to God's commandments, his charge, his statutes, and his laws. That means that Abraham had to know what those things were. This means that Abraham was either taught directly these things by God, or it was passed down to him through oral tradition, or perhaps it was a combination of both of those things. God was not giving Moses a brand new law at Mount Sinai. What he was giving him and his people were a written, a codified, a formal version of the law that would be used to govern his people as they were becoming the emerging nation of Israel. So another reason why we know that the law that these commands or these types of instructions were known to have existed prior to Moses in Mount Sinai is simply because sin existed before then. The Bible makes mention of sin. Many places, I'll give you a few. Genesis chapter 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. You must master it. Genesis chapter 13, verse number 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Genesis chapter 39, there it contains the the story of how Potiphar's wife was in pursuit of Joseph. And beginning in verse number 7, it says that it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? It's a question. Then, then what is sin? The Bible tells us and teaches that sin is, is a transgression. Sin is a breaking or the violation of the law. And so if sin is described as being a transgression against or a breaking of the law, then the law has to exist prior to sin. So all of the people that are described in the Bible as breaking the, the law... Or, or sinning in the book of Genesis, that means that they broke the law of God prior to Moses receiving a codified written version of this law. Which means that the Ten Commandments were known and understood by people prior to Mount Sinai. So God gave them the, the written version of the law, the Ten Commandments, out Mount Sinai, and then back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Verse number 14 says, The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So just stop right there. I'll kind of help you to understand what that means. Is that first of all, God gave them the written Ten Commandments. And then he said to Moses, to those basic Ten Commandments that you have been given, then I want you to teach further statutes further laws, further things to the people. And so Moses went from having the Ten Commandments written by God. He went on to, under God's inspiration, he went on to develop further statutes and systems and laws and judgments that would be used to govern the people of Israel. Some of those laws refer to how they were to obey and to please God. Some of those laws were instructions on how they were to love other people. Some of those laws gave guidance to the Israelites on how they were to worship God and, and even how they were to atone for their sins. This is the sacrificial system. Some of those laws or instructions governed what the people wore and what they ate and they were given to them so that they would be distinct and unique among all other nations. We could take all of these laws of God and, and kind of break them out into three major categories. 
You have the moral law, the judicial law, or the ceremonial law. Now watch this, right? The moral law, think about how we're to love one another and how we're to love and to please God. That is given for everyone. That's all-encompassing. The judicial system and the ceremonial laws and instructions were that they were given to Israel to guide them in how they were to execute justice and how they were to worship God. So the moral law is all encompassing, but the ceremonial and the judicial system were specific to Israel. The key to understanding the relationship for, for the believer and the law is in knowing that the Old Testament law was given to the nation of Israel, a particular people, for a particular purpose. And so how are we to properly understand or, or, or fully appreciate the purpose of the Old Testament law? I think Paul speaks to that very clearly in Galatians chapter 3. Now, Paul views the law of Moses as a body of commandments that were given for Israel for a limited time and a particular purpose. We see that in his letter here. So with the coming of Jesus, we have the inauguration of the new phase in the history of salvation This is the time when the law or the Torah that once was used to govern and guide the people of Israel, this is the time when that comes to an end. It's over. Paul's response in in chapter 3 of Galatians is because the people have failed to understand the salvific shift that has occurred because of Jesus Christ the Messiah. For the people at the time, it was just business as usual. Yeah, the Messiah came, but they they still believed that the law was there to govern God's people. And if you wanted to be considered one of the people of God, then you had to strictly conform to and adhere to the law, whether you were Jew or Gentile. In response to this, Paul argues that the the, the purpose of the law or that the law enters into salvation's history for a specific purpose in a limited time. Beginning in verse number 17. says, what I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Which means the law was given 430 years after Abraham entered into the promised land. The law was added to the promise of the Messiah. First comes the promise, and then comes the law. The law was given to govern the people of God. The law was not designed to replace the promise. After all, Israelites still continue to be referred to as the children of Abraham. 
They continue to keep and to pursue the Abrahamic covenant, believing and longing for the promise of the Messiah. But take note what happens next in verse number 19. Verse number 19 says, why the law then? Then it gives us the answer. It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Here we see three reasons for the addition of the law. First reason, the law was given because of transgression. The law was given to reveal or to to make known sin. The law was not given to make a person righteous before God. No, the, the law was given to make us aware of our sin and condemnation. The law was given to show us that we all fall short of the glory of God. The the law was given to stop every mouth from boasting in any kind of self-righteousness. The law was given to awaken us to our desperate need of God's intervention and help. That's the first reason. Notice, secondly, that the law was temporary. The law was temporary. The law was intended to rule God's people until, the text says, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Until the seed, until Jesus, the Messiah. And when Jesus arrived, after which that, 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 that time has is, is been completed, and so the law was given because of transgressions. The law was, was, was temporary. And then number three, the law was inferior to the promise because of the manner of its establishment. Let's see if you can follow with me here. Moses stood as the mediator between God and man in the giving of the law, right? Therefore, the law came to man as a second-hand thing, but not the promise of God. No, God himself gave the promise of the Messiah. Abraham received the promise of the Messiah directly from God. So while God made the promise to Abraham directly, the law to govern God's people were given to God's people By a mediator. In fact, there wasn't just one mediator. There were two. You have the angels representing God and Moses as the representative uh, from the people. And so keep reading here. And we see the distinction between the law and the promise. In verse number 20, it says, Now a mediator is not for one party only, Whereas God is only one. So you have to see verse number 20 in connection to verse number 19. So understand that a mediator implies that a covenant has been established between two parties. And when there is a covenant between two parties, then both of those parties have responsibilities to fulfill and to uphold within that covenant relationship. This is true of the Mosaic Covenant. 
On the other hand, the phrase God is only one is to say that the promise spoken about in verse number 19 was given to us unilaterally. It means the promise was given to man directly without a mediator, which means God himself bears the full weight of responsibility in fulfilling the promise. So a logical question would arise from this. And Paul addresses that in verse number 21. In verse number 21, he says, Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. In other words, there is absolutely no conflict between the law and the promise of God. Heaven forbid is what Paul replies with. May it never be. Absolutely no. There is no conflict between the two. Why? Because God gave both the law and the promise. They both had their own purpose. And so the purpose of the law was not to give life. It was not to provide justification. Although it doesn't impart life, although the law can't justify a person, the, the law does help to prepare the way for the gospel. Think about the law and, and the gospel. What part does the law play in the gospel? The reality is declares, the law declares all of mankind a prisoner of sin. We are all universally condemned and under the wrath of God because of sin. And so when people recognize this reality and when they're willing to give up their foolish attempts to please God on the basis of their own works, then the way has been prepared for them to receive the promise of salvation by grace through faith. Verse number 22 continues, and he says, But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Look at verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ <clears throat> so that we might be justified by faith. So the law is the tutor leading us to Christ. Verse 25. I don't know how much more clear it can be. It says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the law. Verse 26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs to the promise. The law, the Torah, 
that functioned as a tutor, and some of your translations might render that word as a guard. It's a tutor or a guard for Israel during their early time. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We're no longer, according to verse number 23, we're no longer kept in custody under the law. And to be under the law means to be under the authority of the law. Romans chapter 7 makes the similar point. Romans chapter 7 verse number 4 says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Believers have been made to die to the law. We were made to die to the law so that we might be joined to another. Not just any other. No, the other, the another is to be joined to Jesus Christ in order that we might bear fruit for God. Which means that that we believers in Christ have been released from the binding authority of the law. Romans chapter 10 says it like this. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. What does it mean for Christ to be the end, the end of the law? The word end comes from the, the Greek word telos. Telos can be translated or defined as a climax culmination, or a a point of time marking the end of a duration. Do you see it? Paul is reminding us that, that Jesus is what the law was pointing to all along. And Jesus, as it is, it's the finish line. He's the finish line to the race that Israel had been running Now that the finish line has been reached, the race is over. Paul's declaring that that the coming of the Messiah, like the finish line of a race, marks the intended outcome or the culmination of the law. And so the law is no longer a tutor or a guard to the people of God. Which means Jesus has set us free from the bondage of hundreds of laws and commands. I'm back to Galatians 3. With that being said, now here, beginning in verse number 11. It says, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we will receive the promise of the Spirit, through faith and the blessing of Abraham, the promise of the Spirit is not received 
in, in adherence to the law. No, it's received by faith. Jesus has redeemed us from the curse that has been brought on as a result of the law. He did so by becoming the curse on our behalf. In other words, Jesus substituted himself in our place. Upon the cross, he took on the punishment and the wrath of God that we rightly and justly deserve. And through faith, we are no longer under the curse of the law. Because Jesus, and only Jesus, has fulfilled and upheld all of the requirements of the law. So, there is an extreme that people can take this understanding to. Let me be clear. This reality does not mean that believers are free to be lawless, or to pursue lawless, or or to ignore any moral law or instruction that God would have us to do. This is an extreme view that's held by some people today, and this view is something that's referred to as antinomianism. Antinomianism comes from two Greek words. The first part of it is anti, which means against, and the second part of that word is nomos, which means law. So antinomianism can be defined as against the law. Here's the thing with antinomianism. Antinomianism takes a biblical teaching to a non-biblical conclusion. The biblical teaching is that believers are not required to observe or adhere to the Old Testament law as a means of justification or salvation. It's not required. Now, the unbiblical conclusion is that there are no moral laws that God expects for us to obey today. Biblically speaking, there is a moral law that God expects from us. There always has been. That's why when we're studying through Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, verse number 15, there we see how the law of God has been given to all men through the witness of our conscience. Obedience to the law does not secure one's salvation, never did. The only way that we could be right with God is by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus boldly, clearly says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What does that mean? Where do we go from here? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live our lives in a, in a way that fully honors and glorifies God? And we'll start in 1 John chapter 4. Beginning of verse number 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He continues in chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. 
And he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And Jesus Christ himself spoke with clarity about the commandments when questioned and pressured and and pushed about, hey, give us a distinction. What commandments are really the ones that we're supposed to follow? Which ones are the more weightier ones, if you will? Jesus responds as recorded in Mark chapter 12. The question is, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. We have been called and commanded to love God and to love one another. If we'll be obedient and faithful to these two commands, we will be upholding all that God expects from us. But may you know, we will never be faithful in fulfilling these two commands without the interceding work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So not only does he give us the expectations, he gives us the means by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to faithfully carry out what he expects from us. A lot of thought to some of the verses that were shared last week. And some of it just bothered me because it didn't paint the real full picture. I want you to know that when you read or study the scriptures, you need to read and study the scripture in the entire context. You cannot just extract a verse here and extract a verse there that seems to give support to your position. When if you would just read the entire context, it would actually disprove the point you're trying to make. Philippians chapter 3 is an example from last week. Philippians chapter 3 begins, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And then he says, and put no confidence in the flesh. He says it right there. Puts no confidence in the flesh. There's no confidence whatsoever in anything that I might have done or will do on my own. But he keeps going. Verse number four. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh... If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. He's not done. He's still making his point. 
I keep reading verse number 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What things has he counted as lost? He just said his circumcision, his lineage, his zeal, his pursuit of the law. All of those things are a loss and compared for the sake of Christ. Verse number 8. He even says more than that. I count all these all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them. Count what? His circumcision, his lineage, his pursuit of the law, his zeal. He counts all those things but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Rubbish. That means refuge. It means, it means dung. All those things that I might have confidence in, all those things that I might have a tendency to boast in, my lineage, my zeal, my, 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 my pursuit of the law, all those things, I can pile them all up, and it's just a pile of manure. That's it. They have no value, no significance on their own. He says in verse number 9, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Hang with me just a little bit more. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Verse number 6 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and establishing your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principle of the world, rather than according to Christ. Verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him. Through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This written code, this law, was like a handwritten certificate of debt. And since people cannot perfectly keep this law, it becomes a bill of debt. Because we're unable to pay that bill of debt, we become criminals, delinquent on our accounts, But Jesus took away this criminal charge, this 
certificate of indebtedness. He took it away by his death. It was as if, as they nailed our Savior to the cross, he nailed the certificate of debt right there beside him. He's wiped the slate clean. It says in verse number 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 1, it says it like this, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, It's saying, for the law can never make perfect those who draw near. You see what's happening in those two references? It's saying that the law, the Sabbath, the festivals were all given to us to point us to Jesus. I mean, we didn't spend any time on the Sabbath. But consider the Sabbath. What are we told? We work and we labor for six days and then we take a little rest. We work and we labor for six days and then we take a little rest and we worship in that rest. But the Sabbath, this was a physical picture of the spiritual full-time rest that we have in Jesus Christ. So for those who trust and believe in Jesus, every second of every day is our Sabbath rest. That's it. We don't restrict worship to one day. We offer our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. This is our spiritual act of worship. We're living in the Sabbath rest. Our lives should be praising and declaring his glory every second of every day. The law, the Sabbath, the festivals were all given to point us to Jesus. And guess what? Him. He's come. He's conquered. He's given his life. He's rose from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And one day he's coming back to take us home for those who put their faith and trust in him. The law, the Sabbath, the festivals are all shadows. But in Christ, that's the substance. Why pursue the shadow when we have the real thing right in front of us? It's like trying to hug a shadow when you have the Messiah right there. It makes no sense. So as we faithfully pursue obedience to our Lord and Savior, may you remember his words as recorded in John chapter 13. There he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another.
Join me in prayer.